Today's episode of the Gestalt Education Show is brought to you by three of our favorite sponsors, Human Locomotion, Core360 Bell, and Dynamic Disc Designs. All the information can be found below. By now, you have definitely heard us talk about them, so check out the show notes, click the links, use the codes, and uh, make sure you support our favorite people. Uh, as always, we got a great episode lined up for you today, and thanks for tuning in. It's actually, it's actually even better. We, I like to get a comment, at least one or two comments on our YouTube page about how the lighting's bad or something else is bad like that. So it may, keeps everybody on their toes. So, but we're good. This is perfect. Okay. We're just going to get right into it. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Gestalt Education Show. Uh, today, we are diving into what's becoming one of our favorite topics, and that is the ACL recovery or the ACL rupture. Uh, we've had some amazing people on this podcast already talk about it, but uh, we went out and uh, we're thankful for our next guest for allowing or for, for agreeing to do this and to sit down with us even late at night here, uh, the one and only Christopher Powers. And so uh, if you are up to date on ACL research, period, you know this name. You've seen it come across uh, your PubMed. And so uh, today we are excited to be sitting down with literally the expert in the world when it comes to the ACL. And so, Brett, you first heard uh, uh, Chris talk in, where was it? It was in Chicago. Chicago. I've been sitting in Chicago the first time years ago. Yeah. And he did a great job. And back then, Chris, you were telling a story about hip abductor, weakness, timing, things like that. And the uh, ACL tear. So we thought, you know, we, we've had Timothy Hewitt. <clears throat> and others kind of talk about different ideas on our podcast. And uh, when we talked to you before, you know, we thought that the quadricep might be a good uh, jump off point because you've done you've done some work there, more work than probably anyone, probably as far as what the quadriceps doing and prevention of ACL tears. And then even after the repair, some of the asymmetries that we're seeing as we're working these athletes back to back to sport and uh some real interesting things kind of jump out just uh from looking at the the paper you sent us one is uh do you think as was the edifice of the paper because maybe we're we're starting to jog our acl reconstructions too soon do you think in rehab uh i do actually um so let me let me step back for a second and kind of give you the the background the impetus behind this um yeah so, you know, in my in my clinical practice, you know, we we see a lot of ACL patients and um you know, and and you know, as as you probably know and most of your listeners know, okay, you know, every surgeon has their protocol, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. here, here here's the protocol to follow and and the, these these protocols te- tend to be very uh time-based. Okay, well, at 2 months you do this and at 4 months you're allowed to do this. Yeah, six months you're allowed to do that. So, and you know, I, I've always struggled with this clinically because you know, not everybody, but not all patients progress at the same pace. You know, some are much slower than others. Some move a lot faster than others. So, you know, but we we tend to be really dogmatic about these protocols. You know, okay, well, it's at, at four months, it's time to start jogging. <laughs> okay. Right. And that's that's typically what I've seen in the past is, well, okay, and, you know, the patients are antsy to start doing something besides range of motion and quad sets. So they're they're really anxious to get back to something a little bit more dynamic. Um, 
and we we start them off. But here here's the problem. And running um, is a very uh, quad intensive activity. You know, so when you look at the biomechanics of running, um, the quadriceps play a very large role in terms of shock attenuation. You know, so when you you're hitting the ground at two to three times your body weight, okay, and you have to attenuate those impact forces and and the knee flexion and the eccentric quad um, work that occurs is is really the the key element in terms of cushioning that that impact force. And um, now, if the patient doesn't have sufficient quadriceps strength, okay, what what's going to happen is they're going to limit their knee flexion. They're they're not going to bend appropriately because they don't have that eccentric control. And what happens is they hit the ground very stiff, you know, I mean, very, very hard, basically. So their their mechanics are not ideal. And um, so that, you know, and and so returning someone to run or to jog initially without having a certain level of quad strength can be very detrimental. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I think many of your listeners probably have seen this. Well, okay, well... Um, all right, it's four months to start to start jogging to start, you know, doing this because that's what the protocol says. And then they go run for a little bit and two or three weeks later, they come back. My knee hurts. Um, my knee's swollen. Um, you know what I mean? And now we have a setback, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So imagine hitting the ground with those forces and not being able to attenuate those forces appropriately. The impact force to the joint is huge. So there's a lot of compressive forces that would occur. If the, if the quadriceps isn't functioning well, the knee is not bending well, um, what happens is the, there's a high level of compressive force. And now, you know, you know that most of these ACL patients um, have had meniscal repairs or meniscectomies. So their, their, you know, their, their cartilage inside their knee is not ideal. It's not an ideal environment. So now you add in these high compressive loads because the quad isn't functioning, then now we have another problem. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, yeah. now you got a swollen knee, the quad gets inhibited. And now, now we're stepping back instead of stepping forward. And um, so that was really the the main impetus behind this paper was to okay, th- let's look at the relationship between quad strength symmetry mm-hmm. and running symmetry based on the ground reaction force values and and see and try to establish is there a cutoff by which we can predict who is going to be asymmetrical in their loading and who would not so and and really to kind of take away the time component and and really try to put some objective numbers to this you know how strong should your quad be relative to your uninvolved side before you start the jogging protocol and that's the question that we wanted to address beautiful and i think what was interesting about this paper too is like you said you you actually did measure at different uh percentages and so can you kind of talk us through like what the actual conclusions what that study was was uh what percentage was your best perceived uh symmetry and what are the consequences mainly i know you kind of talked about that but the consequences long term of not having that symmetry uh in the in the quadriceps yeah so we know so it's been suspected that asymmetry loading asymmetry 
um, in these patients persist for years. So this has been well documented that uh, you know during squatting, walking, running, there there's this learned behavior of compensation basically. So you know, and I think this happens during the rehab process. You know, first month or two after reconstruction, they're hobbling around, they're putting all their weight on the other side. This becomes a learned behavior, you know, and it carries over to all activities walking, squatting, running. And so now we've created this, this new motor pattern that is very asymmetrical. Now that asymmetrical pattern is thought to perhaps be contributory to two major long-term problems. Number one, this early onset osteoarthritis <laughs> that yeah. these patients have. And two, re-injury mm. um, and maybe contralateral re-injuries. So, so, you know, it's suspected that this asymmetry is detrimental in the long run. Um, so that is a big part of the rehab process is to restore quadriceps symmetry and loading symmetry in these mm -hmm. patients. So here's the idea. If I start running and my quad strength asymmetry is off, and now my running asymmetry is off because of it, that now becomes a learned pattern. You know what I mean? And that mm -hmm. and shown to stick for years, two right. to three years post return to sport. And I, I think that's a problem. Mm -hmm. yeah. So 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 basically our finding was the cutoff was turned out 88%. So uh patients who had quad deficits um less than so let's say a 12% deficit. <laughs> so greater yeah. than 12% deficit um, uh, had a high probability of a significant probability of being asymmetrical in the mm -hmm. running. Right. And that yeah. was measured through ground reactive forces during the actual running cycle. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So we, we measured the ground reaction forces uh, during running. Mm -hmm. And then we have their quad strength values on both sides. So we sure. create a quad strength symmetry value and then a running symmetry value. Beautiful. So, you know, and 88%, that's, that seems a little high. Um, you know, when we looked at existing literature, uh, you know, some people say, well, it's okay to start running at, you know, 60, 75%, 80% quad symmetry. And it's all over the board um, in terms of the recommendations. Um, so what we reported was much higher than what's currently standard. <laughs> yeah, so, right. Yeah. So what this tells me as a clinician is like, look, I, I don't let my patients run until we get our quad strength to 88, 90%. Mm -hmm. That may mean that we hold them off until it's six months. Right. To me, that's okay. There's, there's mm -hmm. no harm in that. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. it doesn't, I don't think it gets people back to sport quicker. Right. Um, you know, if we're if we're operating off a nine month, the twelve month time period, which seems to be the norm these days, um, you know, there's no huge rush to start running at four months. Right. And you and I think you run the risk of okay, now I got a, a tendonitis, my mm -hmm. knees rolled up a little bit. You know, that impact force is too much for the knee at that point in time. Now we have a setback. <laughs> and right, right. You know how that goes. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
And then how important is the distinction between open and closed chain function as far as like in physical therapy, we have a lot of measurement of quad strength in an open chain fashion, but obviously running to closed chain events. So how important is it that we kind of bridge the gap between those two different distinct functions, open and closed chain function? Yeah, but so in our study, we we quantify quad strength open chain. So on a on a dynamometer. So so that is our standard way of assessing quad strength. Um but but you're right. I mean, obviously during running, it's a you know, all muscle groups are working together. Um, but in my opinion, you know, when I'm training quadriceps strength, you know, we use a combination of open and closed chain because I, I think it is important to isolate. And one of the problems is when you just, if you just stick solely with closed chain exercises as a rehab tool, these patients compensate. There's intralimb and, be, you know, within limb compensation and between limb compensations. And, and, and work that we're doing here at USC, this is more Susan Sigward's work is showing that you can't visualize it. It's so subtle um, that, that clinicians can't really even see it kinematically. So the problem is you, 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 these patients are, they can cheat and you think that they look symmetrical when they're squatting, but they're really not. Right. So I think using a combination of isolated work and close chain, I think is really the key. Um, and yeah, I think that that's well said. And I notice you're very careful to refer to, uh, the whole muscle as a quadricep. There's obviously been um, people have just basically been enamored with uh, muscles like the vastus medialis oblique. Uh, can you speak of is that distinction important or is that kind of just minutia that doesn't really matter at this stage in the rehab or doesn't matter at all? Or what's your opinion on all the attention that's been given to the vastus medialis portion of the quadricep? No oh boy, now 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 you're going back thirty years. <laughs> that's now. a dark, lonely <laughs> road. Yeah, I, look, this this was the big issue with patellofemoral pain. So um, this is my other area. And, you know, back in the 80s, um, you know, we were all trying to strengthen the VMO with the idea that we were going to stabilize the patella and pull it more medially, et cetera. But to be honest with you, that whole VMO dynamic instability theory, VL, VMO versus vastus lateralis has really been, I, I won't say disproven, but it has fallen by the wayside due to lack of evidence. So in my opinion, I, I look at the quadriceps as an entire unit and not trying to really isolate one aspect or the other. There's really no evidence. A, we can selectively strengthen one component over there there's there's absolutely no evidence for that and b we only in quad atrophy when we see post-op or whatever tends to be systematic across all the heads of the quadriceps mm -hmm. so there is no selective atrophy if you will of the vastus medialis um so you know the the basic tenets of that theory really don't pan out from a research standpoint Perfect. So, in my opinion, but, you know, so we just look, you attack the quadriceps as a unit and um, not try to be that specific about it.
Beautiful. What about in the testing? Um, you know, if it, let's just put it to our clinicians here or for us is just a regular dynamometer, uh, a good option for testing quad strength. Do you have specific standards that you'd like clinicians to maybe be up to date on, uh, with that type of testing, or, uh, can you give us some, maybe some resources on, on clinical practice for measuring those? Yeah. I mean, obviously we're using a, uh, uh, HUMAC norm, you know, a dynamometer, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, uh, that is obviously a, a, a big, expensive piece of equipment um, mm-hmm. that's not readily available. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of clinicians who use uh, handheld dynamometers and tensiometers. Mm-hmm. There's some the, definitely some lower cost options out there. Um, yeah, there are some problems with those, obviously, in terms of stability and, you know, reducible, uh, you know, reliability and that sort of thing. But I think it gives clinicians a uh, a gauge. Sure, I mean, we need something. Mm-hmm. Manual muscle testing, forget it. It's worthless when it comes to the quadriceps. So uh, I think that's not even in the picture. But you know, if you have a handheld dynamometer and you have a strap, you have something fixed that they can push against. It gives you a rough idea. Mm-hmm. Now it won't be the same level as a one of these big dynamometers, but. Um, you know, I, I think this is a big problem. I, I, I'm i a big believer of technology, and I, I think we really need to be more objective mm-hmm. in our clinical decision-making. And, you know, to me, this is important. You know, right. we use this as a criteria to progress someone in the return to sport phase of the program. And if I didn't have those numbers, I'd be guessing. Right, right. Okay, One of the I've been doing this for a long time, so maybe 75% of the time I guess it right, right. and the other 25% I guess it wrong, and those 25% don't end up being very happy in that case. Could you speak of the correlation between quadricep girth and girth measurements in strength? Because there's been kind of a push the last couple of years that you know, I think it's like the BFR movement that is basically making everyone kind of pay attention to what we've all seen after the ACL injury, where we see a lot of atrophy in the quadriceps. So um, is it important to be measuring girth? Do you think that's like an, an important metric or objective metric that we should be looking at? And what's your opinion on that? Um, okay. Yeah. I, I want to talk about the BFR thing as well. So um, yeah, cool. Girth. No, I, I've seen this a lot, you know, and I see a lot of these patients for testing and I, I see the girth differences many times, but I don't see the strength differences. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't think girth is a good indicator of strength. Um, and, and I think a lot of patients don't have the girth, but they have the good strength. Surprisingly, mm-hmm. Don't ask me why, because I haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> Because it looks smaller, but you test it, and I go, yeah, it's, man, it's just as strong. So I, I, I don't, I don't understand that, um, but I have seen it quite a bit. So I, I wouldn't rely on girth as an indicator. Um, the BFR thing, I, I have a couple strong opinions about this. I, I think, um, I think BFR is a great tool um, initially. When I say initially. I'm talking the first month post-op. And, and I think the role of BFR is really to reactivate the quadriceps, to get the quadriceps going. You know, to really, you know, the knee can't handle large loads at that point. 
we can get a good muscle, you know, response with low load. I think it's great. But at some point, you got to get off of it. And I've seen too many clinicians be doing BFR for four, five, six months. And at some point, you have to start loading the muscle tendon unit. And that muscle tendon unit needs load to adapt to handle the loading that's going to happen during running, jumping, cutting, and that sort of thing. But if you're doing all your strengthening with very low loads, the tendon is not going to adapt to the loads that are required during sport activity. And then you're on BFR too long, and then you go right to more sport loading, then the tendon becomes overloaded. Now you got the dreaded quad tendon problem, yeah. and, which is all too common in the rehab world. And, and my thought is we progress patients too fast into the higher demand activities when they don't have the adequate quad strength and tendon adaptation required to handle those loads. Mm-hmm. So I personally put a lot of this post-op tendonitis problem in these patients on us in terms of progressing patients too fast when they're not, when the muscle tendon unit's not ready for it. I and think we slow it down. Is right. There's a little bit of evidence too to show that if there's a fusion in the joint, that there can be some inhibition in the quadricep. So obviously we all deal with, you know, swelling with uh, the uh, post-ACL rehab program. Do you worry about that? Or is that just, you know, do you, is that on your radar? Oh, 100%. Yeah, that that that's the one of the number one priorities post-op is, you know, is working on that. But I want to go back to what I started with. You know, you start running on a weak quad. The impact forces on the joint go way up. The cartilage is not normal. The knee becomes swollen <laughs> and low-grade effusion in the knee. And that shuts down the quadriceps. And that just reverses everything you've been working on. So that's one of the downsides of starting jogging too early mm-hmm. is that, you know, the high impact forces on damaged cartilage, no good shock absorption from the muscle, the knee gets hammered, basically. And right. uh, that creates a low-grade inflammation. And, you know, that shuts down the quadriceps. Now we're back two months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. What about uh, what about the testing? I know that we kind of talked about differentiation of the different quad muscles. Is it talk us through what your perfect world of that testing looks like? Open chain, you know, knee extension. Like, what is it? Just pure sagittal plane? Is there any credence to creating internal external rotation, different hip positions, anything like that, or is it just good to standardize it in the in the sagittal plane? Yeah, we. I mean, we just standardize it in the sagittal plane. We, mm-hmm. we test. I mean, really, most of the research that's been done. On ACL, it's mostly isometric strength testing. Mm-hmm. We test at 60 degrees. And yeah, I mean, it, it's just an indicator of muscle performance. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying sure. it has to mirror the demands during running or whatever. That's not right. my point. It's like, okay, here's a standard to compare limbs, mm-hmm. right? Is this, is your involved limb up to speed to your uninvolved limb? I guess maybe a better question would be, what would your standard 
test be? Can you walk us through that maybe just a little bit? Like I know you just said sagittal plane, but what like how when you're testing a patient for for limb symmetry, what would be your perfect like ideal um, uh, standard? Okay, so let me walk you through our strength. So we we measure quad strength. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm gonna be a little controversial here. Um, what we don't measure is knee flexion strength. Okay. Okay. This is, I had to explain this. This is a little. Yeah. So let me ask you guys, what, what, what are the function of the hamstrings during running or jumping or cutting? How do the hamstrings function in weight bearing during sports specific activities? What's their role? Um, I mean, we think of the hamstrings kind of like the, the reins on of a horse to be able to control internal and external tibial rotation. Um, and then, yeah. And I mean, we just, we distinguish the difference between open and closed chain function as far as which way the muscles actually pulling. We don't really think of an origin insertion as much as we think of attachment sites depending on open and closed chain function. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. So during weight-bearing hamstrings, they cross two joints, right. hip extensors and knee flexors. Mm-hmm. In weight-bearing, they were functioning as hip <clears throat> extensors. Right. Largely. Yeah. yeah. And now, of course, they're they're stabilizing the knee and sure. you know, doing all the things you just described. So here's my my thought on this is, is really for me, what I want in terms of symmetry is really I want the quad strength to be equal to the hip extension strength. Hip extension, we also test hip extension strength, which is really glute and hamstring. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at the symmetry between the hip and knee extensors as kind of my gold standard, as opposed to open chain knee extension versus knee flexion. Got it. Because that is not how the hamstrings function when you're cutting, landing from a jump, running. You know, it's not an open chain scenario. So mm-hmm. really, when I assess, assess hamstring strength, I'm doing it through hip extension. And we have published several papers showing that the 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 knee extension, hip extension strength ratio. So I, I look at the quad strength versus the hip extension strength. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. That's a really As, good and I want that ratio to be close to one. And, and a lot of athletes, their quads are twice as strong as their hip extensors. Mm-hmm. And and now you got weak hip muscles, you know where that goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that so, kind of you know I mean? our, our yeah. conversation with Tim Hewitt on, on yeah. quad dominant versus hip dominant versus trunk dominant, those types of things. Yeah. Exactly. You're quad dominant. And but when you test people that move in a quad dominant way, which we know is not ideal, mm-hmm. their quads are much stronger than their hip. Why are they not hip dominant? Well, because their power and strength is in the quad relative to their hip extensors. Yeah. So, so really, I look at that symmetry as being mm-hmm. a really critical aspect of return to sport. Because I, I, you got to have the hip strength. Yeah. You, know? you got to get the quad strength back. But what you don't want is intralimb asymmetry, where mm-hmm. the quads are twice as strong as the hip. That's a problem because right. that we have papers showing that people that have more quad strength relative to their hip they absorb impact more through their knee relative to their hip well and if hearing you talk that it sounds like obviously you've talked about the quad a ton in your research and things like that but 
training the quad and the hip at the same time probably makes a lot of sense, especially in these return to play and the, those types of things. Well, think about this. So sorry to interrupt this episode, guys. Hope you're enjoying it real quick. We have an amazing, amazing opportunity. The DNS World Congress is coming to Chesterfield, Missouri this June 14th through the 16th, 2024. If you guys attended our NDS or our Neurodynamics Congress, you know that we uh, this is uh, something that's very close to Brett and I's heart, something that we are going to keep doing and keep doing and keep doing. So this year's Congress is all about DNS, dynamic neuromuscular stabilization. This is literally uh, like looking into the ocean, as Brett says. This is the lens that we look through each and every one of our patients with. And this is going to be an amazing opportunity because Pavel is back in town. So the originator, the creator of DNS, Pavel Kolash, is coming to the stage for the first time in five or six years. I don't even know how long it's been. Uh, he's bringing along with him Elena Kobasova, which is literally the backbone of DNS. Uh, she's one of the most underrated neuro neurologists in the world. Uh, so we're super excited to hear from her. Uh, Marcella Safarova, if you haven't heard her speak, uh, she is literally the queen of pediatrics and musculoskeletal health. Uh, we also are going to have Ever, almost every single U.S. instructor at the uh, at the Congress who's going to be speaking. It's going to include demos, lectures, hands-on. Uh, we're going to have, as always, uh, a get-together afterwards with your chance to talk to these guys face-to-face uh, -face and have a couple drinks with them. This is going to be a great, great opportunity. There's also, it's a great price too, especially for students. It's only $4.99. Uh, so be sure to use the code DNS student uh, to get your discount on that. Uh, for more information or if you have questions, go to gestaltedu.com backslash DNS dash Congress. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Let's, let's go back to what are what are the risk factors for ACL injury to begin with? Mm -hmm. You know, valgus, knee dominance, knee valgus, you know, hip weakness. Mm -hmm. We have a paper showing that hip weakness predicts future ACL injury. So mm -hmm. imagine that. So you have a patient who has a non-contact ACL injury, probably has a lot of hip impairments and valgus and all the things that we talk about. They have a reconstruction. They go through rehab. The rehab largely focuses on getting the quadriceps back, which is great. No problem <laughs> with that. Right. But they're ignoring the fact that they probably had pre-existing hip deficits. In the first place. In the first place. Mm -hmm. And now they re return them to play. Now they still have the same risk factors that caused the initial injury going into return to play. Mm -hmm. And hence our re-injury rates are 30 percent right which right. is not acceptable and then in in, in your paper you reference uh, webster and hewitt's paper about how the knee the trajectory of the acl repaired knee isn't great from a degenerative standpoint so do you think that paying attention to everything that we just talked about will change the trajectory of how the uh, the knee is aging, or do you just feel like, you know, once you've torn your ACL, your knees, you, we're going to have more osteoarthritis in that knee as your, as your life goes on? Or do you feel like the interventions that you've been doing will actually be changing uh, that? That's a great question. And to be honest with you, we don't know because those longitudinal studies have not been done. But here's the deal. Not every single patient who has an ACL reconstruction goes on to early onset OA. So um, it's a percent, you know, it's about 40%. So now that's a big number, but not every single patient will progress to that early onset situation. That's what the literature tells us. So, so some, some patients are escaping it somehow. And maybe it is because their mechanics have been optimized to reduce knee loading. You have to think about what causes knee OA. It's, it's okay. abnormal loading to the joint. So we have to, as physical therapists, we have to make sure that 
the joint loading is optimized, meaning that the mechanics are sound so that they're not putting undue load through their knees. And um, that's something that we really have to take a little bit more seriously as a profession. And because right now it's largely, okay, let's get strong and let's do some hop tests. Okay, 90%, great, you're good to go. It's nine months, you know, and, and we're not really looking at the whole, the big picture here. Yeah. We're not looking at the quality of the movement. You know, we're just progressing patients based on the timeline, regardless of their capabilities and capacity. And, you know, and we don't have really good return to sport criteria. Mm-hmm. Not that timelines are important, but we had uh, uh, Dr. James Andrews on our podcast and he's on record for saying he said uh, he wants his athletes, if it's possible, to wait a year to return back to sport. So although we're not, we're kind of against timelines, as we've talked about, have you noticed the same thing? I mean, do you think like a one year might be a good goal to make the athlete if it, if it, if the sport allows? And I know there's scholarships and a lot of things that are involved, but if we can make them stay out a year, uh, do you think that's uh, maybe something we should be doing? Well, the data do say that the longer <laughs> you wait, yeah, the better the outcome. Right. But the question is, what are you doing during that year? So I would argue. If you're getting really bad rehab for a year, um, I, I would take great rehab for nine months over crappy rehab for a year, to be honest with you. So I, I think it really depends how you use that year. And mm-hmm. if you really are using that year to optimize strength, power, mechanics, everything, then I think it's a great, mm-hmm. smart. But I we're returning people before they're ready, before... Mm-hmm. We're accepting, okay, well, they're 90%. That's good enough. Well, you have to remember, these ACL patients had pre-existing risk factors. That's why they're ACL patients. Mm-hmm. So in my book, we spend the first six months correcting the post-surgical impairments yeah. that are caused by the injury and the surgery. And then we switch focus to, okay, what were the pre-existing impairments that got them here in the first place? Mm-hmm. And that's the second half. Of it. And that may be another three months or six months. And, and that's where we get heavy into the hip stuff and change strategies and, and hip power and, and normalizing these hip to knee strength ratios. So, but I, I think it's great. The year mm-hmm. is great if you use it wisely. Right. A good right. message to put out there too. I mean, that, that is, I think that is the key. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, we, we talk about chronic pain sometimes on this podcast and, you know, you can get to chronic pain because you get shitty treatment or you can get to chronic pain for all sorts of other reasons too. But I think, you know, uh, the retail rates, uh, I don't, it's impossible to probably study how good the rehab is versus how, you know, the time frame. it's just like an impossible thing to, to postulate. And so I think that's uh it's a good message to put out there that the rehab matters. It, it does. It's the key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Since since we got the guy here, I'm dying to ask. Uh, what what is your opinion on? Uh, there's been a now everybody's talking about quad tendon. Obviously, we've had patellar tendon. You got hamstring, hamstring tendon. Autograph. So, yeah. yeah. What is your uh, since you're since you're in the world and you're the person in in the world on this? What do you what's your take on that? What, what if you tore your ACL tomorrow? Which one are you doing? That's what we are. Oh man, okay, that's a good. <laughs> I, I think about that all the time, actually. Because <laughs> then um, you'd really be under the microscope, wouldn't you? Yeah, I um, here here's a 
what I've seen and read, and we've have a paper on this as well. So the what I'm seeing a lot here in LA, a lot of quad tendon refs. Mm -hmm. You know, surgeons like the quad tendon because it's a big, thick graft, you know. Um it's meaty. Mm -hmm. And uh and I think initially I thought, well, you know, we're not gonna mess with the patellar tendon because that's where all the pain goes, you know what I mean? Right. So <laughs> um what I've seen though, and I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, the, the quad atrophy and the time it takes to get the quad back with a quad tendon autograft is much longer. Mm. You know, I I it's patients have a harder there's a greater inhibitory effect on the quad muscle itself. Now, I, maybe because it's closer, I, who knows why, but I've seen that and we have a paper that we published on it. And there was a recent paper I just read that found a very similar thing. So the, the time it takes to get quad symmetry back with a quad tendon graft is, is longer. Mm. Uh, now, maybe that's a good thing because that keeps them in rehab longer. I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> But um, that is now. Um, what was the question? So, which, which graft would you, would you choose? Which would graft? Patellar, quad, hamstring. I would not do ham. I would not do hamstring. Uh, I, uh, you know, I'm not a surgeon, so I'm speaking <laughs> way out of my league here. But you know, I, I'm not a big fan of taking a tendon, a muscle away. Um, you know, do they do the hamstring grafts stretch out over time? You know, I don't know. Um, I would either do quad tendon or patellar tendon. Mm -hmm. Which one would I take? I don't know. I, I would have to really think about that. But yeah, it would yeah. be one of the two. Definitely not an allograft. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm 60. And I know they tend to do allografts for older patients like myself. But um I would not do an allograft. Well, that's that's kind of the the consensus. Even you know we've had some awesome surgeons, George Paletta, James Andrews. They're all kind of a little bit mixed, maybe 50-50. I'd say Kremchek, uh, Doctor Kremchek, we've had on and uh, versus uh, patellar versus quad. But it seems like hamstring has kind of gone to the wayside. And and uh, I think that uh, I can't remember who talked about it. Have you? Is there any difference in knee OA long term between the graphs? Is that a correlation? Do you think that that's reasonable to consider when you're choosing a graft, or is that more understanding what we've already talked about in this podcast with quad dominance, things like that? Yeah, I, I'm not aware of any <clears throat> research that's looked at that or graft type, but I would my my guess would be that the biomech the a the status of the meniscus in the cartilage matters um, matters a lot. So if you have a meniscectomy with the ACL reconstruction, that opens the door. I mean, we know that meniscectomies go on to early onset away. So, um, and then, and I think loading of the knee throughout the the return to sport phase and beyond is is really a, a key factor as well. So you combine abnormal loading with poor cartilage health, you got the recipe for early onset away. Yeah, there's, I think that can occur irregardless of the graft type. Fair. There's kind of been a movement now uh, of especially like the older patient who tears their ACL to not have the repair done. And uh, and obviously that knee gets a lot of arthritis as it age. What do you think about this movement in the younger athletes who have like an, uh, an ACL injury in isolation, not getting it repaired? 
and uh, and what that athlete's career looks like after that. There's been a couple famous cases of that like happening, and they'd obviously have to be great copers or adapters. But what, what's your opinion on that? Oof, boy, I I just don't see I I'm, where I am in in my practice. Um, we just don't see those patients. You know, I don't have a lot of experience with non-reconstructed knees. Right. Um, yeah. I, I just, so I don't have a good gauge in terms of, if I tore my ACL, I would have it reconstructed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think Fair. we're all in the same I, page, I, You know what I mean? Because I don't want to go skiing next year and turn and my knee goes out. Now I've torn my MCL and yeah. now I've damaged my cartilage <laughs> even more. I don't know. I think I, the, I would have the reconstruction and rehab myself perfectly and then <laughs> be perfect and, and then hope for the best. <laughs> well, I think it's just like everything. The pendulum has swung so far and, you know, they get the cross bracing and all this other thing. And, and at the end of the day, I think it all comes back to what we've talked about this whole thing. It probably depends on the goals of the patient and things like that. But I personally don't see a patient that would benefit from just taking a year off and rehabbing without having that ligament in their body. And so just biomechanically, it just doesn't really make sense to me, but that's my personal opinion. So, well, you could probably, if you're just a, straight ahead athlete, a runner, a jogger, and you weren't doing skiing or soccer or basketball, you, you know, you may be able to get away from it, you know, but I, I don't know, not for a young athlete. But yeah. I, don't know. I agree. I agree. And then if, if you were looking at a, if you were making a pie chart, uh, Chris, and we were talking about what are the most important things that need to be considered when we're rehabbing in, uh, after an ACL reconstruction? Uh, we've talked about quad strength. We talked about hip strength. We talked a little bit about hamstring. Um, obviously, there's been a little bit out there on Q angle. There's a hormonal influence. There's obviously a female male component. Could you kind of break down what that pie chart would look like in your world as far as like the most important thing and then kind of work backwards from there? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we can only address the things that were hormones, Q angle. Those are things we can't change. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll put those aside. But I, I, I look at it in three key things. Number one, recover from the surgery and the injury. Restore your quad, the muscle strength around the knee, okay? That goes, you know, goes away after the reconstruction. Quad hamstring and calf. By the way, we haven't talked about calf strength, but super yeah. important. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We can so get on that cover the second piece of the pie. And I don't know which one's more important, but the second one is address pre-existing risk factors. And that goes to the hip, hip mm -hmm. abductor strength, hip extensor strength. Um, you know what I mean? Those strength deficits um, that we kind of forget about. The third piece of the pie is really restoring working on the movement piece and, and really working on correcting core mechanics, you know, trying to get people to be more hip biased in their movement, not knee biased, um, trying to prevent dynamic knee valgus, um, absorbing impact properly, you know, using your hips and knees, not just your knees. So I, I look at it as a three part process, you know what I mean? And now which of those is most important? I, I don't know, but I, I do know that working on the movement piece is super important because mm -hmm. I think that's what gets the athlete in trouble in the first place. So putting someone back out with the same set of risk factors 
that caused the initial injury is bound to come back to bite you. Mm -hmm. And that is really the movement patterns, the biomechanics, as well as I think the hip component of it. Well, I think you you just labeled instead of using timelines, you use three distinct sections. You have to yep. pass each section before you go on to the next one. I think that makes a lot of sense when you're designing a rehab program for ACL. Well, we do the hip and the quad stuff together in the sure. first six months. Um, but but yeah, I, I think that's really critical. And we spend a good three months just working on movement retraining and mm -hmm. cutting and making sure their mechanics are good. And uh, that's, I think, the big missing piece that it's missed in a lot of, I think we do a reasonable job with the strengthening, um, but not necessarily looking at the movement side of things. Because Is know, it worth, go, I'm sorry. There's just a lot of research showing that mm -hmm. certain movement patterns are predictive of future injury. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's prospective studies out there. Tim Hewitt published the first one. Um, but there's been five others that have been published since Tim's paper that show different biomechanical predictors of of injury. Mm -hmm. Is it looked at this for re-injury as well? Cool. Is it worth looking at trunk position? Obviously, when what we look at patients tearing their ACLs when no one else is around them, uh, you see their their center of gravity is well outside of their base of support, that being their feet. Um, it's kind of a, an intriguing topic, but I feel like sometimes like that's a hard thing to coach like in sports, you know, is it, you know, because, you know, in the past people have talked about like core strength and stuff, but just because you have a strong core doesn't mean that you know where your rib cage is relevant to your landing position and jumping, I guess what I want to say is, is it worth going after or not necessarily? The trunk stuff? Yeah, the trunk positioning. Yeah, I mean, I think, to be honest with you, a lot of trunk positioning has to do with hip strength. So if I have a weak hip abductor, you know where you're positioning your trunk and yeah. you compensate. Uh, that. So I, I think it is important. Um, but you're, you're right. You, we cannot correct and reduce all movement pattern. You know what I mean? If mm -hmm. you're if you land awkwardly under the basket and your your arm is reaching out and we can't prevent that from happening. Um you know the analogy I use is you know you wear a seatbelt when you're driving your car, hopefully. And just because you wear a seatbelt doesn't mean you can't have a major injury or get killed, right? Now Wearing the seatbelt reduces the risk of a major injury. It doesn't eliminate it. Sure. And all we're trying to do in PT is put seatbelts on these athletes. So in in a majority of situations that they get in, they can get out of it. But they get in a really tricky situation. I mean, we can't prevent that. Yeah. So, and but, I, but I think core strength, hip strength, I think it's all important. And then I know you're going to know who uh, Gary Gray is. We've had Gary Gray on our podcast. And if he was on here, he would say that we actually probably need to be training our athletes into some of these valgosity positions because once they get out on the field, they're gonna they're gonna get themselves into that position. And this is just like a philosophical debate that rages on between all different camps. So what do you think in kind of Gary's model? Do you think it's important that we eccentrically control the knee into maybe a bad Valgas position because they're potentially going to be there? Or is that not an important thing or let's not even go there because it's late and we've had a long day? 
All right. Well, I don't believe in it. I I would I would not do I don't do it. And here's my argument. You know, when we talk about dynamic valgus, for example, so if if my hip abductor is functioning eccentrically, I have a problem. We want a stable pelvis and a stable hip. And and really the role of the abductor is more isometric. Mm. You know, but if I of course if I go into a lot of valgus and there's a lot of eccentric load, that's a problem. You know, so mm. so I really you know, gluteus medius and the hip abductors should be more stability, mm-hmm. you know, no. So I don't train it eccentrically because that's <clears throat> not what I want. <laughs> if, right, if I yeah. have an alveoli yeah. going into a lot of eccentric hip abductor, they're in trouble. Right. And that typically means they don't have the stability of their hip to control it. So I, I just, you know, I don't personally follow that approach but yeah perfect good answer good answer that, that's that's just me but yep. yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, i think that there's a, a middle ground i think we're we're probably somewhere in the middle between each of you you know like that's that's the hard part i think with all this is it all comes down to clinical experience but uh what i forgot to mention is you are obviously uh with usc and uh you i'm sure you've got a bunch of amazing research studies going on right now can you just kind of uh give us a little bit of a glimpse into the future of what's going to be coming out with uh, your name on it and kind of what are your big projects right now and, and uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. Right now we are, we're definitely focused on the ACL. We're, we're really interested right now in re-injury and, and develop. We're really working on developing a movement screen, basically. Uh, it's basically a return to sport assessment, looking at movement quality in terms mm. of, identifying some of these pre-existing risk factors. So um, that's a big thing we're working on right now. Um, I'm also really interested right now in looking at this interaction between anatomy and biomechanics. So I, I think a lot of these patients, there are, you know, we know that there are biomechanical risk factors for ACL injury, but there are also well-known anatomical risk factors for ACL injury. Like so, an anti-verted hip or like, well, like tibial slope. Oh, yeah. In, intercondylar notch. No, yeah. just related to the knee itself. Mm-hmm. And um, and what really is interesting to me is really when you combine faulty biomechanics on imperfect anatomy, you got the perfect storm. And, mm-hmm. and really trying to better understand this, the, this comprehensive view on risk factors for ACL injury and and you know, because I, I think you could if you have poor biomechanics, you're you're not doomed for ACL injury, but as long as you have good anatomy underneath the hood, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But anyways, that, that's something I'm really interested in. Not that we can correct anatomy, um, but just from an academic standpoint, really, because you know, some of these patients that we have trained that gone through our program that have great mechanics, that have great hip strength, that, and, you know, some of them do re-injure. And I just scratch my head going, holy crap, what did we miss here? You know? Right. And um, so, you know, it's not perfect. You know, now hopefully we've reduced the rate, but we haven't eliminated it. So I, I'm just really interested in understanding why some of these patients have two or three ACL injuries. What are we missing here? Mm-hmm. Have you been able to identify ways of I, I we I'm always bringing we're always bringing it back clinically ways of identifying anatomy that 
could be a red flag is someone that's doing a pre-participation screen or something like that? I mean, is there anything out there or is it just imaging is your only option? It, right now, imaging is the measurements we're taking only can be seen imaging wise. Mm -hmm. And specific imaging, I'm sure too. MRI, MRI. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So all the, there's, there's a ton of research out there with anatomical risk factors. It, it's right. not in our field. Mm -hmm. It's more, the orthopedic surgeons are well aware of it, but we're, less aware because we don't know it we don't see it right. we can't fix it so yeah. we ignore it um, <laughs> that's right but imagine if you had a patient come into your clinic and they had this constellation of risk anatomical risk factors and mm. you would know go okay i i gotta be on my a game on the biomechanics right. side right um so you know Anyways. Which would be buying for our patients to Motivate get our treatment, yeah, with their exercises or absolutely to follow through with care and things like that. I think that's, I mean, if you well, could figure so, that out, so, holy smokes! So if you um, have risk factors for diabetes or whatever, or heart disease or cancer or whatever, you know, what what do the physicians tell you? You have to make some lifestyle changes. Right. Stop smoking. Eat better. Exercise. You know, what I mean, you're at risk. Mm -hmm. And you, you have to minimize that risk. So if patients knew they had inherent risk for certain injuries, say, look, as physical therapists, look, you got to be on a good program here to prevent knee pain or knee injury or whatever. So, you know, medicine does it, you know, mm -hmm. they, they have all the risk factors for all these injuries or all these medical conditions, but we could be doing the same thing, you know? So anyways, Just as we wrap it up, uh, you kind of hinted on the gastroc, and I know there's soleus. some research on the soleus too that uh, Thomas Schaud, uh has exposed. What do you, uh, yeah, with, without going all the way down that lonely road, uh, what are you finding with the with those muscles? And do you think that might be maybe the next five years of uh, ACL research? So looking at uh, the muscles below the knee, actually, or that are crossing the knee, like the gastroc and maybe the soleus or tibialis posterior, whatever, which one you're talking about? Yeah, so 100%. So, um, you know, when you have a weak calf, um, gastroc, soleus, and as well as, well as the perimalleolar muscles, you know, you, you tend to collapse into excessive dorsiflexion, which puts you in a knee bias position. Mm. So if you're tibia collapses forward and your knee shoots forward to your toe, your quad has to work harder. So, so basically, I, I think calf weakness can lead into what we have turned as this quad dominant pattern. <laughs> that, mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You, you know, and looking at to be people that have weak calves overuse their quads. And we're doing a study right now, of a doctoral student who's looking at the relationship of calf strength and knee loading in runners. This is not an ACL project, but um, the, the fi basic finding is the more tibial collapse forward you have, the more dorsiflexion you have, the greater the knee loading. And then that's related to calf strength. So I, I think there is implications here for, um, you know, um, ACL injury. Um, because, yeah. you know, there's been some notable ACL reconstructed athletes that have torn their Achilles tendon. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You, you probably know a couple of them. And yeah. um, so I, I think that I, I look back, oh man, maybe we've been missing something over the years. So right. we test calf strength and we have added that into our protocol. 
Mm-hmm. I think it's important to stabilize it. It's a stabilizer of the knee. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Well, I think to, to your uh, to your credit, you're revolutionizing the the research, and we're thank you for your contributions. Number one, and you know, I, I think uh, we're kind of homers for for Thomas showed. Uh, uh, gadgets and his dynamometers. He's got some great ones, honestly, mm-hmm. at site humanlocomotion.com that are, are pretty accurate as we've seen as far as testing when it comes to foot strength. And then also you can use it for the the quad and the uh, the glute too, would be true, which would be amazing, the hip extension. But uh, just to close, I mean, I, me personally, I just thank you, Chris, for your your research, for your efforts for this. Um, it's a problem that, that needs to be discussed more because it's happening more and more and more. And I think, uh, you know, as someone that's in the trenches on the high school athletes, uh, this is something that I hate to see. And it seems like I'm seeing it more. And so the more we can do to one figure out risk factors to your what your point there. And then two, to make sure that when we're returning these people back to play, that we're not just using timelines. I think that that's a great message to put across that if your assessments and your objective data isn't corroborating with the timeline, you know, be able to tell the orthopedic surgeon this and be like, hey, they are not ready. I know you want to clear them. And I know the mom and dad and the coach and everybody else wants to, but they're not ready, plain and simple. And uh, I think that that's a drum that we need to continue to, to, to beat, so... I think too. I mean, your paper exposed that we're we're potentially jogging and running our ACL reconstructed athletes too soon. I mean, I think that your paper obviously filled that that void, and uh, and that's probably understated. I think that hopefully now more people will pay attention to the 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 paper that we presented tonight. Mm-hmm. So, Which uh, I'll, I'll put in the links and uh, a direct link to it so that you can you can read through it. So. Uh, contact for him yeah so chris i mean what if people want to number one if they want to read more of your research obviously pubmed is a great resource but uh where can people find your work number one and and reach out to you maybe if they have questions or you know what work with you all those types of things yeah i mean obviously my usc contact you can find that online my mm-hmm. my clinic um uh, movement uh, movement performance institute i i opened a clinical facility 15 years ago. I don't know if anyone even knows this, but um, we do a lot of return to sport testing and a lot of assessments and it's a state of the art PT clinic. We had cameras, force plates and the whole, the whole deal. So uh, movementpi.com is the clinic website. Um, At movementpi, you follow us on Instagram. Um, And yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, like PubMed is probably the best place to look at research and stuff and yeah or you can just email me i'm happy to send you <laughs> papers <laughs> yeah beautiful beautiful um when, when's a book coming out i know you i know you. i know dude that's on my list dude. all right <laughs> so i before i retire before i retire i have to write a book you have to have to yeah we would love that I know, but well uh so chris i mean we uh yeah, we love your work. We obviously love everything that you, you've done. And uh, you just have to promise, now that you're a one-time guest, you're a second-time guest, we're going to come to USC and we want to see your lab and everything like that. Uh, we'd love to see your clinic and and uh, give people a first-hand look at that. But uh, again, thank you for sitting down with us and uh, thank you for contributions, man. Yeah, great job, you guys. It was, it was fun. Yeah, was beautiful. Fun. All right, guys. We'll, uh, Thanks, Chris. Yeah, good luck with patience and uh, we'll see you next time, guys. All right? Great. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gasol Education Show. Uh, if you liked it, share it, 
subscribe to it, uh, send it to your friends, send it to someone that needs to hear this message. Uh, we really want everyone to be able to, to tune in and, and get the, the best clinical advice that they can, which uh, we're hoping that we're giving to you with these special guests. So um, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us, or if you have any suggestions on upcoming uh, conversations, let us know. Uh, for a list of our upcoming courses, we're adding them all the dang time. So go to gestaltedu.com, click on courses, and they'll all be right there for you. All right, have a good day.